0: Well, I headed up the Central Mississippi response to Katrina, and uh, I did some work on 9-11 also, and i uh, been different places around the world. I was in the Middle East uh, after an earthquake in an unnamed country, and I uh, worked over there with their government and uh, several other places. Uh, how many of you are in the medical field, nursing, doctors? Okay. That makes sense. You're at this conference. Anybody in the mental health field? If you need mental health, see me afterwards. We'll set up a schedule. Okay? Um, Okay. But you're interested in disaster relief. I want to be flexible in how this presentation goes because I didn't know how many mental health oriented people would be in here. Don't know how far to go into things like post-traumatic stress and that sort of thing. I'll touch on it. What I want to do is leave time at the end for some questions. So we'll bat some things around, hopefully. I think there's some outlines coming Uh My good assistant is bringing those down from upstairs. There she is. Okay. Do you think I can make it to the door? Would you shut that door, please? Thank you. Yeah, okay, okay. May not have enough outlines, uh, but we'll set up an email list, sign-up list, if you'd like to get this later. If you're uh, not able to get one today, we'll get that to you. Um, Also, we have a limited number of... Brochures and information about Mission to the World um, Disaster Relief Ministry. And so I'll just put some of this. Can I put it by, by you? My name, again, is Dave Foster. Um, full-time, uh, I'm employed uh, in the Mississippi Delta. I'm the clinical director for two-county community mental health region of our state. Uh, about 12 years ago, I went on a mission trip. Somebody called me up uh, from mission to the world, and they knew my background in disaster relief work, and they knew my background. I teach part-time at Reformed Theological Seminary in their counseling program. been doing that over 20 years, but i would never been on a mission trip. And uh, I have seminary degrees and all that, too, in addition to my psych training, and um, But this guy called me up, and I'd had a rotten day at work. You ever had one of those? I was like, you know, I'm going to kill everybody. You know, and, you know, I could just see it emblazoned across the Yazoo Herald. You know, clinical director kills everybody. You know? and, and this guy called me from Mission to the World, and he said, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, and I want to invite you to go. And I was like, what? You know? And I sat there and listened. He said, "I want you to go to Kenya because we need a mental health professional to go assess how to deal with street kids." And uh, if you were in here with Paul Williams yesterday, I don't anybody in here yesterday with, for the disaster session. I thought it was great, uh, but he's right. Don't go on one of these stinking trips unless you expect to be changed. You know, I mean, it revolutionized my life. And since that day, I've been engaged in ministry to missionaries. I do a lot of missionary care around the world. And then I also have done disaster relief work around the world under the auspices of various NGOs and non-governmental organizations and also mission agencies. Uh, I was in the Middle East a few years ago after an earthquake, and I'll be telling you perhaps a story or two out of that. I've been to Africa, all over sub-Saharan Africa, South America, Central America, following disasters. So that's my background, okay? And what I'd like to do is finish this. I have too much material. You ever heard of that? Okay? So I may go too fast. Maybe it'll keep you awake, though. Some people brought coffee. They heard about me, and so they they brought coffee. (laughs) Uh, Which was wise. But, uh, you know, at any time along the way, even though I may be rolling, you ask me questions if you like. And I want to make sure, though, that we reserve some time on the back end for that. If when we get through, you still have questions, interest in what I'm talking about, I'd love to talk with you as long as you want to. Okay? That's the deal. Um, But I'm here under the auspices this week of Mission to the World, they asked me to be uh, to represent their disaster relief ministry uh, this week, even though I'm not a full-time employee of theirs. Um, and you know what I would like to do is give you two or three pieces along the way. Uh, this uh, lecture says is entitled Responding to the Spiritual, and psychological needs of disaster victims, and that's what I hope to give you an introduction to. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, made a profound statement. You know, Christians, evangelicals, often take a hit, you know, and they're labeled as people who don't care, you know, that all they're concerned about is heaven and the great by and by, and they're not concerned about temporal needs. I don't think that's true. In fact, the people with the biggest hearts uh, for you know, in terms of caring for people who are down and out, disenfranchised, are believers. Uh, and C.S. Lewis basically says that here. Those who have done the most for this world are those who have thought the most of the next. If you think about it, that makes total sense, doesn't it? In other words, if this isn't all there is... You know, if eternal rewards and eternity are out there before us, isn't that where we need to be investing ourselves? Isn't that where our careers need to head, our giving, our going, all those sorts of things? Isn't that it? And if that's the case, then, man, I can give up whatever, uh, just like the guy was saying last night, you know? I mean, it's worth it. I I went to Wheaton College, uh, among other places. And at Wheaton, you know, we have a few patron saints. One (laughs) of them is C.S. Lewis. Uh, And, you know, another is Jim Elliott. And I love the line where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, right? He's exactly right. Our lives are to be about glorifying God and enjoying him forever, you know. And so if that's the case, then we can give. Let me talk about disaster relief ministry a little bit, though. I believe that unless you have a firmly fixed, not perfect, but a firmly fixed theology of suffering, you're not equipped to go on a disaster relief trip because you're going to be blown away by what you see. Dr. Williams was talking about uh, yesterday in his session uh, seeing bodies stacked on top of one another. Uh, When I went to this Middle Eastern country a few years ago, it it was fascinating. My wife and I were walking. We take a two-mile walk every afternoon when we get home from work, and we talk with each other catch up with one another and it was the day before christmas it was christmas eve and we were walking and she said dave i just saw on the tv on cnn a report about this earthquake in the middle east she said do you think you'll get a call to go on that trip and i said vicky there is not a chance we've not we don't have any kind of relationship You know, the U.S. has no relationship with this country. And we're, you know, enemies. When I got back home from the walk, I had a call to go on a trip to the Middle East. And, you know, what I'm thankful for, and I went on that trip, what I'm thankful for is God had been preparing me for years for that event. And one of the ways he prepared me is to help me understand biblically something about suffering and pain. And look, I apologize to C.S. Lewis for co-opting the idea of the problem of pain. But let me give you three quick points. First of all, pain is puzzling to us. There is some mystery associated with it. If you were to look at Romans 11.33, it says, you know, we can't comprehend God. You know, his judgments are unsearchable. We can't get our minds around the greatness of God and and his plan. But what we can do is trust him, that he is good, okay? Uh, He may not be safe, (laughs) but he is good, as Lewis says in another place. Uh, Pain is puzzling. There's a guy named Francis Anderson who wrote a great commentary on Job. And in that commentary, he says, if you're not perplexed by suffering, you either have a hard heart or a soft head. <laughs> and I think he's correct. We can't approach this whole thing of suffering with an absolute certainty as to why God does what he does. But I do believe he's a God who can be trusted. He can, he's a God who loves us who is just and good, and we can entrust our lives to him even in the midst of suffering. Um, There's the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's really troubled in that book, as you recall, uh, about suffering that he sees around him. How could God use an unholy instrument against his people and so forth? In the end, it all works out, and he kind of gets a grip on that. Same thing with Psalm 73 and Asaph. Asaph's looking around, he sees the ungodly people prospering, and he says, Lord, how can this be? And then he comes to this critical juncture in that psalm where he says, you know what, it occurs to me, though, God, you've put those people in slippery places. (laughs) They're going to fall Ultimately. In this life or the next, you've got it under control. But pain does puzzle us. The Tower of Siloam incident in Luke chapter 13, where the tower fell on the just and the unjust. You know, it's it's confusing to us. Nobody totally understands this issue. But the second thing I would say is, you can count on it (laughs) happening in your life. And in others' lives, pain is predictable. It's pervasive. Pain is everywhere due to the fall. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the consequences of the fall of man, that there would be thorns and thistles and pain and disruption and so forth. And immediately after that, we have incidents like Cain killing Abel and so forth. You know, So sin is in the world. Suffering is in the world. It's predictable. Jesus said in John 16:33, in this world you have what? Trouble, trials, tribulations, depending on the translation you look at. It's a sure bet. James chapter 1, what does he say about suffering? Do you recall? You're going to have it, you know uh, Peter talks about that, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you may go through. So pain is puzzling, it's predictable, but pain is also purposeful in God's plan. Uh, sometimes glibly, we throw out Romans 8:28 before people who are suffering. We shouldn't do that glibly, but either that passage is true, or it's not true. God does work. He has the capacity to work all things together for good to them who love him and are the called according to his purpose. God is in control. Amen. Ultimately, he's got it in his hands. And we need to entrust our suffering to him. Well, look, this is just a mini course <laughs> in this. Pardon? There you go. God's God's in total control. Another little passage from Job is Job five seven, and we all know Job's friends and we bash him, and I think a court, you know rightly so. But in Job five seven, Eliphaz uh, actually made a true statement. He said, "As the sparks fly upward from a fly, from a fire, so is man born for does anybody know trouble." Trouble is our middle name. You know, it's inevitable that we're going to face it. We may not totally understand it. But what we can do is entrust it to God's goodness and wisdom. C.S. Lewis has another quote about people who are in the midst of this, who are struggling, who are in the throes of pain. And he says this, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with this quote, but I love it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Powerful, isn't it? Absolutely true. I've been all over the world, uh, and I can tell you when people suffer here or there, They are more open to spiritual instruction than at any other time in their lives usually. And there are all kind of factors playing into that. So it seems to me if that's the prime window of opportunity, we don't want to be exploitative of that. We want to be wise in that, but we want to be there. We want to be present with people in their pain. We want to be there to be Christ to them, in a sense. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Now, what is the world of the disaster victim like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Well, it involves a whole person response. Every piece of who we are in the midst of an earthquake in the midst of a hurricane, is affected. Everything. Uh, I remember uh, when Katrina hit. My brother-in-law lived in a little community called Waveland. You may have seen it on CNN. It was totally wiped out. About three hours before Katrina hit, we were trying to reach him on the phone. Uh, we had talked to him about five or six hours prior to the arrival of Katrina. And we said, Jimmy, you know, what are you doing? Are you, are you evacuating? He says, no, I've been through, you know, a bunch of hurricanes down here. we just batting down the hatches. I've got two businesses. I've got two homes. And I'm afraid if I leave them un- unattended that somebody will break in and steal, you know, what we have. Well, as we watched the weather reports, we became more and more tense. (laughs) Uh, You know, because that big hurricane was barreling up Mississippi. I mean, the breadth of Mississippi, New Orleans, over into Alabama. It was just massive, unlike anything that had ever occurred before. In the throes of that, our emotions were affected. We were praying. (laughs) Our thinking was a little bit distorted. When it hit, the victims of that were evacuated to where I live, and I coordinated the Katrina response for Central Mississippi, and we had hundreds of people showing up on our doorstep literally needing help, needing food, clothing, and shelter, and those people were affected in every possible way Uh, by that storm, Uh, it involves a whole system response. It's not just that all the pieces of who we are individually are affected, but whole communities, churches. There's a church in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, in Katrina. It's one of the most beautiful church buildings in our state. Been there for 50 years. (laughs) Gone. Okay just totally gone. So there was no place for people to go to. Uh, There was no place to get clean water. There was no place to get clothing or shelter. And so, you know, whole communities and even countries are affected. When I was in the Middle East following an earthquake, uh, it it really typifies kind of where I've been in, uh, in other situations. The people who are hosting you when you go on a disaster relief trip are often also victims themselves. You need to be cognizant of that. And I will never forget sitting in a tent on a Persian rug in the desert with the cabinet-level people from this particular country, and they were weeping. And they were saying, we don't know how to think in this circumstance. We don't know what to do about all the children that have been left. The people that were in this particular area lived in extended family dwellings. You know, they just kind of build another room on. And so what happened is when the earthquake hit, the roofs collapsed And 70, you know, 50, 70 family members literally were killed all at once, and there might be one little child left surviving. And that included some of the government officials' homes. And so they were sitting there weeping. They couldn't think straight. Cognitively, they were impaired by this. And so uh, what we had to do coming in from the outside is try to help, get them to a new normal in their lives. When a when a crisis or a trauma hits, there's disequilibrium. Things are thrown out of kilter. It's like the mobile on a baby's bed. Uh, by the way, when I, my daughter is my oldest child. When she was little, I just loved that mobile. You know, I had the zebra and the giraffe and all that. I, my wife would often find me playing with it, you know. But anyhow, if you crank that sucker up and, you know, you let it run around, it can kind of go crazy, you know. And if you hit it, you know, I did all this. I'm confessing. Anyway, you hit that thing and the zebra's bouncing up and down and then ultimately what happens? It comes to homeostasis. It comes back to equilibrium. That's the way people are in a crisis. And so what you need to do is try to help people find a new homeostasis, a new equilibrium. And you do that in a number of ways, which I'm going to address in a few moments. How people perceive a disaster, though, in part, is determined by the type of disaster. And this is something Paul was talking about yesterday a little bit. Is it, Was it a natural disaster, a man-made disaster? Or a complex combination of those things. Which of these do you think is the most difficult to overcome? You think a natural is. Anybody? Why? Because it's because of somebody else's choice that I'm hurt. I mean, exactly. A is no one to blame. Right. There's nobody to blame. There was no intent back of the natural. one. Makes you question God, though. That's true. That's true, you could blame God, couldn't you? Absolutely, and people do. But a man-made, man, you've you've got flesh on it, you know? You know that somebody intended harm, like 9-11, you know? I mean, the horror of that, the terror of it. When I was in this Middle Eastern country that I referred to, in the middle of the night, I'd been working... Uh, with a psychiatrist from that particular country, and I was doing intake interviews. And then people that needed uh, medication help, I passed along to him. And we worked hours and hours and hours, and I was exhausted. I was jet-lagged to start with. Came back to this tent, and I mean, I hit my sleeping bag and just, you know, I was out. Well, about 30 minutes later, the intelligence officers from this country came into our tent, shook us awake, and they said, we have reason to believe Al-Qaeda wants to kidnap you or kill you tonight. And I said, that's not good. You know, and uh, so, you know, we worked through that and all through the night, were worried we, we couldn't be moved in the middle of the night where we were. The next day we were, and and by the way, I made it, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but the thought, you know, I, I was lying there, uh, you know, in my little sleeping bag, you know, thinking, I may never see my wife again. I may never see my children again. Uh and somebody wants to do this to me. I'm a nice guy. You know why would they want to do this? And you know that's that goes through your brain. You know is this a man-made thing? You know like 9/11 or is it a natural disaster like Katrina? There is some difference in how people tend to respond to those. Uh, but also people are influenced by the phase of disaster and their various rubrics we use to look at disasters and I won't get you get into all the detail of that uh, because you really don't need to know that except to say in the initial phases of a disaster in the initial phase of it a lot of times people are in shock and they they need direction Uh, have you ever seen a car wreck where people get out and maybe you're just kind of wandering aimlessly around they're in shock, psychological shock, and it's hard to engage them. They don't give you eye contact. No true dialogue is occurring in those situations. And so, you know, the first task in a, in a disaster is often just trying to get people oriented, you know, to time, date, place, and person, trying to get them uh, stabilized in a sense. Uh, And that's also true, by the way, for the first responders. Um, One of the things that I have had occasion to do in the past is when first responders are there, the rescue people who go pull people out of the rubble or, you know, that kind of thing, find people under houses and, you know, stuck in the mud and so forth. Those people need Somebody to respond to them because they can be traumatized by that. let's Let's talk about this a little bit more just a second. Some principles for responding to a disaster. Some of this is from critical incident stress management. How many of you are familiar with that? You ever had any training in that? Anybody? Well, that's good. I can say anything and you'll believe me. Okay. Uh, There are two guys named Everly and Mitchell. One of them was a firefighter. One of them was a psychologist. And they developed this response to disasters called critical incident stress management. And there are actually seven different types uh, that you can do based on the event. Uh, But anyhow, these principles, the first three are drawn from their material. Proximity is huge. I can't help somebody I'm not with very well, can I? I mean, we're limited. But if I'm hands on, if I'm in their face, you know, if I'm there to hold their hand, if I'm there to listen to them, if I'm there to put something on a wound, that's good. It's great to pray, but it's better to have close proximity, you know? You can actually put hands on and do good. Okay, proximity is the first principle. Second is immediacy. The sooner, the better. The sooner you can arrive on the scene, the better. The CISM people, the Critical Incident Stress Management people, they talk about a 24- to 72-hour window of opportunity after the event, that the prime time to help people debrief is, is that window. There's some dispute about that, and I just want to put that out there. And we found that that's not always the case. Uh, I was having lunch with a guy named Peter Tennant who uh, headed up the 9-11 response in New York City. And he and I were discussing this, and his, his take on this is, you know what, we found out that isn't true that it doesn't matter, even, and it would be great. The quicker you can get there, the better. still holds true. But even if you can get there later, there's still good that can be done, and sometimes there's a delayed reaction to stress that needs processing. So proximity, immediacy, and brevity. We're not talking about doing long-term therapy with people. We're talking about intervening in a nuts and bolts kind of way, being there with them, sitting with them, and hearing their stories, being available to direct them to resources they may need uh, as by way of follow-up. Any questions so far? Is the coffee holding up? Okay, good deal. All right, resiliency is one more principle I would put down, and that's mine. And that is, look, if you're not physically able, you're not emotionally together enough, you're not spiritually in a good place, probably you do not need to do disaster relief work. And that's, it's, that's not a put-down, and nobody's there perfectly. But what you don't want In my part of the country, this is how we say it. You don't want two cows in the ditch and nobody to pull them out. You know, know, one of us cows has got to be okay. You know, we can't be in the ditch. For every person on a disaster relief team that goes down, it usually takes two or three of the other team members to take care of them. So if you go down physically... Emotionally, whatever—that's a bad deal, because we've got this brief window of opportunity. We have limited resources, money, time. We want to, you know, be the most efficient uh, stewards of God's money and time, right? So, just a thought—you got to be somewhat resilient uh, in order to do this kind of work. Y'all hanging with me? Yeah. Yeah, proximity means being close physically, in in their space, basically, you know, like geographically. Brevity has to do with the amount of time you work with them. You're doing really crisis intervention work, which is short term. Does that make sense? Okay. Hey, help me, okay? I need lots of help. Here we go. Providing spiritual first aid. You know what? We're Christians, right? Let's not pretend that we're not. (laughs) Let me tell you, I I was defending my dissertation proposal last week. I'm doing a dissertation on missionary stress. Uh, They do go through that, by the way. And and I was sitting there, and this professor says, Okay, Dave you know, why do you want to do this research? And so I sat there and I thought, and I had it all written out, and I said, you know what? The real reason I want to do this research is because I've never gotten over being saved. I have never gotten over John 3.16 because I was not running towards God. I was running away from Him. And really, doctoral work is connected to that. You know, ministry is connected to that. It flows out of that. So we're going not to just be mental health professionals or medical professionals in a disaster situation. We're going as Christ emissaries. We're going as His ambassadors you know we're we're putting flesh on the gospel uh, when we arrive. First piece of spiritual first aid is the ministry of presence, sitting with people in the ashes, just sitting, just being with them. Uh, a few years ago, we were in a car wreck, my wife and I, and um, she broke her back. She was in a hospital bed for six months. And um, I like her. I depend on her. She keeps me straight. She makes sure I take my medicine, you know, all these things. Uh, And she's smarter than I am. She's prettier, I can tell you that. But anyhow, there was my wife, crumpled up. And um, I had a friend who just came and sat in the hospital with me. He didn't say much. He got me coffee, you know, patted me on the back every now and then. I think he didn't know what to do with me, uh, as is often the case. But, uh, you know, he was there. And nothing anybody did was greater than that gift. And when people are in a disaster... That is exactly their greatest need is to have somebody sit with them, listen to them if they're wanting to talk. People need to tell their stories, and let me just say this. They'll tell you their story 15 times. That's okay. That's okay. That's sort of cleansing the psychological wound. That's the way they clean themselves up. That's the way they avoid getting post-traumatic stress often. You know, here's the good news. Uh, About 80% of people who go through a traumatic event don't get post-traumatic stress. Uh, You know, vast majority of people do not. They'll experience the trauma, but it doesn't traumatize them. About another 10% need some kind of help in the short term, and another 10% are going to need long-term help and referral uh, for mental health care uh, beyond that. But the good news is if you're just present, if you will just sit with people in the ashes, if you will weep with those who weep, you've done a great service to them. Second thing is the ministry of prayer. Hebrews 4, I was reading this morning in my devotional, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 talks about the fact that our Savior is not someone who can't sympathize with our weakness but was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And so the writer to Hebrews then says, so in light of that, what are we to do? Go to Him. Run to Christ. Because there you will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, in the throes of the worst this life gives us, He is there. He's present with us. He sits with us. In our ashes, Hebrews 13.5 says, He will never leave us or forsake us. He is not going to abandon you. Look, I work in a mental health center. A few years ago, for my licensure stuff, I had to send in how many hours of therapy I had conducted And it scared me. It was like 50,000 hours or some crazy number like that. And I thought, all these people have come through that door. And I've sat and listened. And God has been with us. And, you know, some of them have been helped by his grace to get better. And that's wonderful. But then I thought about God. How many hours of counseling has God done with you, with me? Isn't it amazing? He's absolutely available to anybody, anytime, anywhere in the world. And he can take it. And he can do something about it. God is with us. We need to be with others in their suffering. I love Hebrews 13.3. It says this, remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. Empathy. Looking at life from their lens, from their point of view. God is good. He gives us wisdom. James 1, chapter 5, he says, ask for it. I'll give it to you in liberal amounts. And I won't upbraid you for asking for that. So we pray with people. And I usually, in a disaster setting or any kind of crisis, would ask permission to do that. You know, you don't want to be intrusive or invasive, but make the offer if it seems appropriate. And what I have found, and this is fascinating to me, is even in Muslim countries, (laughs) you can pray with people. Uh, They want you to pray for them. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful way of ministering spiritual first aid. But then lastly, I put down ministry of proclamation. And I would just put one caveat on the ministry of proclamation. If you're in a foreign country, take your lead from the national missionaries and national church as to how far to go in terms of talking about the gospel the Scripture, and so forth. But I put it there because that is our hope, and that, is, that gives others hope. Let me give you one little vignette from this Middle Eastern country. We were not allowed to present the gospel. I mean, that we were there. I was there as a psychological consultant. There was another person there who was a structural engineer, and another person who's here, Dr. Sharon Kuhn, as a medical doctor. And we were each kind of going our separate ways. But we were there for 10 days. <clears throat> At the end of our 10-day time, uh, we'd just been given all kind of opportunities to work with doctors without borders, with some Iranian physicians. with a, I worked with a psychiatrist. Uh, we'd just had multiple opportunities. I consulted with a government official about how to set up orphanages for kids uh, through the mosque there in that country and so forth. But we couldn't talk about Christ openly. We could pray together in our tent. We could pray for one another, but we were not allowed to share the gospel. But we prayed for the people we were with. Interestingly, the last day I was there... Another team came in to relieve us from this organization I was a part of. When that team arrived, there was observable love between us. We knew each other, and it was just so great to see these people arriving on the scene, and it was just spontaneous, you know? I mean, we hugged each other, you know, how are you doing? Great to see you. You know how it goes among believers, uh, at least sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes not so good. But anyhow, it was great. And it was just spontaneous, and it was just real. And this particular person had been one of our guides, and he came up to me uh, in the tent where we were with these two groups meeting, and he says, please go outside and talk with me. Tears streaming down his cheeks. He said, what is it with you people? He said, I have never seen people care for one another like you do. And I'm just going to call him Ahmed. (laughs) That's not his name. I said, Ahmed, it's about what we believe and who we believe in. And, you know, that was about as far as I could take it. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't sure he wasn't. Secret police or something. Uh, You never know who to trust in those situations. But anyhow, two weeks later, I get a book in the mail that he had written on the history of his country. And inscribed in there was, to Dave, my brother. Now, is he a Christian? I have no idea. But I hope and pray, and I know he did get the gospel, by the way, more than what I just said through somebody else. So my prayer is that there is a time for proclamation. There is a time for speaking the truth in love in those situations. Focus on God's character, his attributes, who he is, what the scriptures say about him, but take your cues from the local pastor's. All right, psychological first aid. Let's talk about that briefly. Uh, these, this list actually comes from an organization called SAMHSA. Anybody familiar with that? Substance abuse, mental health, whatever. It's a government agency. And these are sort of their seven pieces they talk about as necessary for intervening and providing psychological first aid to people, contact and engagement. I mean, first you got to be there again. You know, you got to have proximity to the people. You have to engage them, introduce yourself to them. Um, you know, people sometimes, and I've, I've been on disaster relief trips and other trips where people just kind of mill around, kind of stand around, you know, do I? Go talk to these people, you know, do I introduce myself, do I not? You know that awkward, silly stuff we run through our heads. Introduce yourself. Go talk to them. you got to first make contact with them. A central need, though, is safety and comfort. Why would they need safety? They've been in an unsafe environment. And so what you're trying to do is introduce structure and sameness into their lives where it's been removed. Uh, the situation was setting up orphanages. I had this rehabilita- was, his, This guy's title was the rehabilitation minister of this particular country. And he and I sat down in the tent and he was crying and he said, I don't know what to do, you know, I'm so upset and I don't know what to do with all these children. I said, let's, let's just think about this take a deep breath and the guy literally took a deep breath and i said let's sip some tea and we had this little thing in the tent i don't know if any of you've been to the middle east where they do this you know little coals you know and, and tea was great by the way and dates and flatbread and goat cheese mm you know good stuff but we were just sitting there i said let's just sit for a little while tell me about your family Tell me about your job. Tell me what you do with the government and so forth. So we did that about 30 minutes. And I said, okay, well, let's let's think about, in a practical way, what could be done. You have, and there were 50,000 people killed in 13 seconds in this earthquake. And again, multifamily dwellings, extended family dwellings, so you had children left and no parents, you know, no adults. And there were hundreds of these kids. And, you know, this guy just could not get his head around that. And I said, let's think about where your resources are. And there was a community about 20 miles up the road that had not been impacted by the earthquake. And I said, do you have a mosque there? And he said, oh yes, it's one of our bigger mosques. I said, are there ladies, older ladies there, who could donate time? He said, yes, we'll make sure they donate time. Is there a building available there? He says, you know, there is, there's a school, that's no longer used. I said, could it be converted, into an orphanage? He said, yeah, could could happen. And so they seg- sectioned off classrooms and put beds in there. And then this is, you know, redneck guy talking. You know, I said, do you have rocking chairs? And he said, actually, we do. And so I said, that's a cool thing. That, that is a good thing. You know, and let these ladies work out shifts of holding these kids playing with them and you know the other thing you need you know kids need touch they need play they need structure and so we sketched out in a rough form a week a typical week in the lives of these kids school play etc how they were going to do the meals okay that's not rocket science that's just common sense but in the throes of suffering, in the wake of a disaster, people can't do that. You know, So when you go, you know, the good thing is you're coming in from the outside, and if you're not overwhelmed by it, you can offer that kind of help to people to stabilize them. Information gathering. Again, let people tell you their story, exactly what has happened. Offer practical assistance. In your psych 101 class you studied Abraham Maslow, right? Yes. I haven't been. Oh no. Okay, who who was in psych 101? Sorry. Abraham Maslow. What do you remember about him? Nothing. You were sleeping. Okay. Okay. Abraham Maslow had something called the some of you weren't asleep. <laughs> okay, hierarchy of needs. And what did he say He said um, I hear him. Okay. He said, basic needs, basic, basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, right? Yeah, if people don't have that, are they going to want to deal with the great philosophical questions of our day? Absolutely not. You know, they've got to have stabilization. You want to find out how practical assistance can be delivered to them. Connect them with needed social supports if they're there. Some countries don't have a lot of that. And it becomes very complicated, but you do the best you can. Give them information on coping. And again, as a Christian, part of that would be the Lord, right? But also there are other things like eating right. Trying to get rest. Not overloading on caffeine. Okay. Uh, linking with collaborative services. You know, one of the things that struck me yesterday in the session powerfully was Paul saying we don't cooperate in the body of Christ. We got, you know, I mean, think about it. We've got two huge rooms Full of mission agencies and travel agencies and insurance companies, and it's like you know, just it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, but wouldn't it be cool, ideal world, if we could all cooperate, you know, if we could all coordinate, if we could all become a little bit more efficient in how we deliver these services? So, it's important to link up with uh, collaborators in this, okay? All right. You guys still with me? Amazing. Here we go. I have concerns about people who go on disaster relief trips. I have concerns about people who do crisis intervention work anywhere because it's highly stressful potentially, okay? A lot of wear and tear can occur, Uh, Not too long ago, the local fire department called me, and they said, you're one of those mental health types, aren't you? And I said, well, I'm not very healthy mentally, but I'll come. And so I went to the fire department, and what had happened was this really tragic event. A lot of people where I live live in trailers, you know, house trailers. And there was this poor family... Uh, who experienced a fire. And the mom escaped with a couple of her kids, but three of her children died. Uh, They were burned to death. And the firefighters went in to try to rescue these kids. And I'll try not to be graphic, but you get the idea they had to go extricate those kids from this trailer. And some of the firefighters had children who were of a similar age, you know, close in age. And they, what that what did is it triggered things for them about their own kids and that sort of thing. We spent a whole day processing that. And, in fact, I've gone back to these guys to help try to relieve some of that Stress associated with that event, but that's traumatic. And what can happen is, if you're a caregiver, you can be secondarily traumatized. It's called, or vicariously traumatized, just through hearing the stories of people who've suffered. Um, it's it's terrible. You know, you're hearing the worst of the worst that happens in this world. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was working a lot with trauma victims, sexual trauma, uh, people that had been abused. And, you know, I did fine with that up to a point. And then after a while, I was like, man, everybody in the world has been molested, it seems, you know. And it was like overwhelming. And so I I said, you know what, time out. (laughs) I'm taking a break from this, baby. You know, and so I had to, and I had to process some of that with some of my colleagues uh, because if you think you're invincible, you are mistaken. And, in fact, you may be the most resilient, toughest person on the planet, and you may have dealt with all kind of stuff in the ER. You may have dealt with all kind of psychological trauma or whatever, or, you know, rescued people from fires, but at a certain point, it could hit you. You know, the cumulative effect of that, or the, the, hearing that particular story. Here's a little test, they have secondary trauma. Correct. So can, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're my assistant, and I want you to talk. Okay, here, here's the thing. There's a guy named Charles Figley, who's a professor at Florida State, and he and a, a colleague, a man named McCubbin, have written extensively on this subject, on compassion fatigue. Uh, and they also talk about these other things that are down here. But there are tests that actually can help you get a pulse as to how you're doing with all this. There's a there are two DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's For mental health professionals, our diagnostic book, and there are two diagnoses, one called acute stress disorder. It's very similar to the thing that follows there, post-traumatic stress disorder, where people have flashbacks, nightmares, numbing, and that sort of thing. Acute stress disorder is basically PTSD up to one month, two days to one month is when you make that diagnosis. Post-traumatic stress is after a month. And acute stress disorder also has associated with it dissociative episodes where people kind of tune out. Uh, So I won't get into all that because I want to leave a little bit of time here. You need to be spiritually, physically, and psychologically ready. Questions to ask. If you're thinking about going on disaster relief work, is this an ethical exercise you know that we're going to engage in is it something ethically okay should our agency or our church or whoever it is be involved do we have what it takes to make a difference in that environment is it god's will for me paul was talking about every need not being a calling And that's absolutely true. My gifts may not fit that particular need. And is it worth the risk? Should I go? Does my wife support me? Do the church leaders support me in this and so forth? So those are questions you might want to ask before you launch out into any of that. I want to take some questions. Yes, sir. Uh, You know, a possibility would be, and this is, you know, a debate within the evangelical community. Do we go where governments don't want us? You know, do we go in some sort of deceitful way or are we going openly? And, you know, that's tricky business we're talking about, but it is possible that we could do You know, we always have the capacity to do the unethical, to do harm. You know, sort of the first piece of the ethical code would be to do no harm. And we could actually do harm to people and to the local church, by the way, and local missionaries who've been hammering away for so long, and then we come in, you know, riding on the white horse, thinking we're going to be the saviors of the world, you know, do do harm. Other questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was at Virginia Tech during the that you're working with. How do you take a step back to check yourself Very good. without leaving people yeah. in the desperate need in the moment that you do friends? Absolutely. You minister to the people in the moment, but I think any time you're involved in an intense situ- you know, emotionally intense situation, you need to process that periodically. You know, you need to set in place some checks and balances so that you are making sure that you're okay. And whoever's in charge of that needs to do it. And whoever's in charge of it needs somebody they can do it with. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. Uh, We are fragile folks. (laughs) We really are. Uh, You know, we're resilient in some ways, but we're also very vulnerable. And you know when you're dealing with heavily laden stuff like disasters, crises, shootings on the Virginia Tech campus, loss of life, you know it's heavy, heavy material. And so you need to have in place some form of debriefing along the way. Other questions? Right. Yeah. If you're a mental health professional or You you need supervision all along the way. Well, look, I think the coffee worked for most of you. You were a great audience, and I appreciate it. Have a good day.